If you've got a Bible, you can open to Philippians chapter four, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter three is where we're gonna be this morning, beginning in verse four. It's our text today. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a paper copy there in front of you. And Philippians chapter three, the apostle Paul, beginning in verse, latter part of verse four, listen to what he writes to this church at Philippi. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. A few months before Christmas, our son Caleb, who's eight, uh, he lost both of his front two teeth. Okay, and so everywhere we went, like literally the, the second one fell out, or I'm sorry, the first one fell out as we were on the way out the door to his second grade school program. Okay, and so literally Karen and I were in the kitchen. We were gathering up all of our belongings. and We were heading out to the stoop on the front steps of our house, heading to the truck. And he was already outside and he comes running back in with a tooth in his hand and blood streaming from this hole now in his gum as we're on the way out the door for him to go stand on stage in front of all his friends and all their parents and do something that makes him rather uncomfortable in getting in front of anyone, anytime, or anywhere, and now he's got this gaping hole in his front teeth. A few weeks later, he lost the other one. And so literally everywhere we went over the course of the holidays, everyone was like, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, I know what you want for Christmas. You want your two front teeth, right? And so that was literally the joke everywhere that we went with everyone that he encountered. Right, And so Christmas has come and gone. The celebration of Christmas has come and gone for us as a culture as we moved into the beginning of 2016. And yet he still wants his two front teeth. Right, They're still missing. He's got one that's slowly making its entrance as it inches down his gum line there in his front of his mouth. But he still wants his two front teeth. And there may be some of us who have come into 2016 and there's still things that we want. Right, then we've come through, maybe we've come through the holidays and maybe we had a wish list of the things we hope God would provide in 2015, things that we got on our knees and asked God to give in 2015, things that we petitioned God for, pled God for, begged God for in 2015, but there are still wants in our souls. There are still wants in our minds and in our hearts. There's some of us in the room this morning who we still want, perhaps, a spouse. There may be those of us who have never been married before or those of us who are on the backside of a divorce. And yet we have this aching longing for a partner in life, for a companion, for someone who would walk the road of life with us. A longing for that. Maybe some of us have been un were unemployed in 2015. We were asking God for a job in 2015. We want a job. And we got on our knees before God and we went to interview after interview after interview. God, would you provide? Would you show up? 
Would you act on my behalf? Would you show yourself strong? I'm, I'm, I'm desiring this, this particular line of work, and we want that in 2016. We asked God for it in 2015. We didn't get it, and we want it in 2016. Some of you who are students, maybe you're a senior this year, and you have the prospects of college on the horizon for you, or you're an eighth grader this year, have the prospects of high school on the horizon for you, and you want, right, you want that fresh start maybe. Maybe you want to be seen on your college campus or on the high school campus that you're going to. Maybe you want to be seen as somebody that you weren't seen as in your middle school years or in your high school years as you transition different chapters of your life. You want to be known for things different than what you were known for in 2015, in 2016. Maybe some of you who are students, maybe you want more autonomy from your parents in 2016 than you got in 2015. By the way, that's there for your protection, FYI, okay? Uh, some of you in the room, maybe, maybe you want a promotion in 2016 that you didn't get in 2015 or a raise in 2016 that you didn't get in 2015, there are things that you still want. Some of us want to be healed maybe of a physical disease. And there are people in our church right now who are fighting against terminal diseases in their lives. And they've been fighting that fight for years. And in 2016, one of the things they want, maybe they long for, is for the doctors to say, you're clear. You're healed. And not to have... Reports come back and test results indicate that the disease is back. Some of us want to be healed of physical diseases or maybe emotional wounds that have been there for a very long time. We want God to bring healing and to touch not just our bodies but our hearts and our souls. Maybe some of us want to see your kids more if your kids are grown and out of the house. Maybe some of you want to see your parents less <laughs> in 2016 than you did in 2015. Maybe some of you want to have kids in 2016. Maybe some of you want to revert back to your childhood and be a kid in 2016. Whatever it is, some of us want a better vacation in 2016 or to pay off debt that we incurred in 2015. There are wants in our lives. And no matter what else you want in 2016, there may be good, godly longings that God has placed within your heart in 2016 that you want this coming calendar year. There may be all kinds of things that you want, but out of everything that you want in 2016, everything that I want when I look in the mirror in 2016, let me just suggest to you this morning that it is a good, godly, holy thing always and at all times to want what the authors of Scripture want, moved by the Holy Spirit when they write about the things that they long for and the things that they pant after. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the authors of Scripture open their, open their, 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 their journals or they open their, their scrolls and take their pen dipped in the ink and they write upon those pages, these are the things that we want. And listen, out of everything else that you want in 2016, out of everything else that I want in 2016, there is one thing that I want us to want in 2016. As a church, there's one thing that I want you and me as individual Christians to want in 2016. And it's one thing that the Apostle Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 3. If you want something to long after and pant for in 2016, I want you to long after and pant for this. I want, I want us to want this. You may not want it, but I want us to want it in 2016. And here's what it is. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says that the great aim of his life 
what he's longing for, what he wants above and beyond everything else insofar that he's willing to take everything else in his life and put them under the lost column. He says, what I want is intimacy with Christ. I want intimacy with Jesus, Paul says. If you look in the text that we just read together, in verses 8 and 10, Paul says his aim, his longing, his great desire in life is to know Jesus, is to know him. Now that word know when it shows up elsewhere in Scripture, oftentimes it refers not just to intellectual assent to a body of information, or particular truths, but when it shows up in Scripture in other places, it's oftentimes referring to a relational component or a personal component or a conversational component of a relationship or an experiential component of a relationship. So Paul says, what I want is to know Jesus personally, conversationally, relationally, experientially. That's the great aim of my life. Now listen, Paul is not saying here, there's a couple things that Paul's probably not saying here. First one is this. Paul's probably not referring to conversion. Okay, Because Paul's talking about himself and he's writing to a group of Christians. So he's not writing to a group of lost individuals. He's not writing an apologetic tract to a group of lost individuals saying, you need to believe in Jesus and come to faith and believe these things that are true about him that we just sung together. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that he was crucified for my sins. I believe that he was buried in the tomb. I believe that he was resurrected on the third day. I believe that he was ascended into the heavens. And I believe that he will come again. Paul's saying he's writing to a group of Christians who believe these truths and he's writing about himself. And earlier in the book of Philippians, in chapter one, Paul says in verses 20 and 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. In other words, as long as I get to live, as long as I enjoy days on this earth, I get to know Jesus and to die is gain. In other words, for me to go on to be with Jesus is even more of Jesus. So I get to know Jesus here and I get to experience him in all of his fullness and radiant beauty there. And there's no one who's unconverted that speaks like that. There's no one who's not a Christian that speaks that way. So Paul's not talking about conversion here. Paul had met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul has spent his life persecuting the church. Raised, as, as he'll say, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He spent his life persecuting the church to try and sniff it out or or, or snuff it out. Not sniff it out, that would be like a hound, right, trying to find it. Snuff it out, right? Get rid of that flame that was burning in the life of the church. But he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus shows up and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, persecuting the church. And Jesus said, if you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. And so he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus blinds him. That his, his, his glory in his, as the ascended Christ is so brilliant that it blinds him. And he goes into the wilderness for this period of time. Because he can't see anything. And when he emerges from that, he emerges the one who went from persecuting the church now to preaching the gospel. So Paul had been converted. He's not talking about here, he's not saying in 2016, I want to know Jesus, I want to be converted. That's not what he's saying. He's also probably not saying, I just want to be able to pass the doctrinal exam that I'm going to get when I go through some kind of membership class at a church. Or whenever I take a course in a Bible college or a seminary. 
He's not saying, I, I want to be able to, to know more doctrine, to know more about who this Jesus is. Listen, there are some people, and I'll just go ahead and say that there are some people who think the greatest barrier to intimacy with Christ is theology. They think it's doctrine. But their theology is, is about as firm as a Twinkie left on a sidewalk in the middle of August as it kind of gets soft and squishy and everything kind of oozes out to where they're left with really no substance. And they think that the greatest barrier to intimacy with Jesus or intimacy with Christ is theology or doctrine. But listen, I want you to consider something. While theology and doctrine is not, is not doesn't guarantee this personal, conversational, experiential, intimate relationship with Jesus, it is the roadmap for it. It is the roadmap for it. So you don't have it without some some, some, some boundaries set around that, some, some parameters in which it takes place. Doctrine is like the road. The, the doctrine is not the city itself. It's like the map of the city. Right? It's not the, not the experience or the encounter of touring New York City, but it's like the map of New York City or Seattle or San Francisco or Miami or one of the other large urban centers of our nation. Listen, if I dropped you in any large urban center of our nation that you were completely unfamiliar with and you had never been to before, and you didn't have one of these things in your pocket, okay, that you could pull up on your phone. I, my, my dad was, was, <laughs> took a trip with us a couple of uh, months back, and he had, uh, we, they went on ahead uh, to visit my brother and his wife in Oklahoma. Uh, and they brought Sarah with him, because Caleb was still in school on a Friday, so we're going to check him, or we get him out of school and leave later that day. So Sarah's with him, and they stop at the tourist bureau there at the Oklahoma and Texas border. And my dad picks up a paper map, and he, he comes back into the truck, <laughs> And, my, and my, my very astute four-year-old daughter who was sitting in her car seat in the back seat goes, what's that? He's like, a map. It shows you where to go. And, and as only a four-year-old can, she said, Papa, you don't have Google? <laughs> I digress. And so if you didn't have one of these things, right, with Google Maps or iMaps or Apple Maps or some other map software on your phone, and you, and you couldn't communicate with anybody else. Perhaps you didn't, maybe there's a language barrier. I'll drop you in an urban center in another country. There's a language barrier. And I give you a particular point of destination. I say, you need to make it to this destination by this time, on this day. And you have no guidelines for how to get there. You're probably not going to make it. That was Google talking to us, <laughs> telling us how to get there. You're probably not going to make it, Right? See, doctrine is like the roadmap for the city, but it's not the city. You can go out today and buy a Rand McNally atlas. I don't know where you're going to find it, but you can go find it somewhere. You can go out and buy an atlas today and open it up, and you can study every map of every major urban and metropolitan center, but it's not the same as walking those streets, is it? You can look at where the junctions of the interstates and the state highways and the local municipal roads and the, the dirt roads even on some of those maps, where they intersect and how they run north and south, east and west. Some of them are laid out in a circle. It's a little bit weird, right? But wherever, how you can study those maps day after day after day, but it's not the same as walking the streets of that particular city or town, is it? And putting your eyes on those landmarks. See, some of us, we may have a great roadmap. We may have a great roadmap, but we've never actually set foot in the city. 
We've got lines and we've studied exactly where the interstate runs and where the state highway runs and where the county FM road intersects with that interstate so we know where that junction is and where we're trying to head. But we've never actually walked those roads. We've never actually seen those buildings. Let me give you an example of this. All right, probably the simplest, clearest illustration I can. When I was in college and early on in seminary, listen, I had on my doctrinal map, on my road map, I had a street called Sin. I had a street called Sin. And listen, if you asked me to give you an academic definition of sin, I could have sat down and written you an essay, right, 1,500 words or less. I could have written you an essay on what sin is, how it's, what sin looks like, and how it affects people. I could have written all these abstract principles about what sin is, that we're sinners by nature and choice. It's inherited down through our first parents because we all, like Adam, have, gone, have fallen uh, in his fall, and by choice, we continue to choose things that are dishonoring to Jesus day after day after day. And that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I could have given you a definition academically of that. I had a great street. I had a great line on my map. But listen, after nearly 18 years of pastoral ministry in some capacity of working with people and looking in the mirror and seeing my own sin over the course of that time, as I put my face in this book over and over and over again, I see my own sin on its pages and I see sin in the lives of other people. When you sit down with someone who's been raped, when you sit down with someone whose son or child has committed suicide, when you sit down across the table from someone whose spouse has abandoned them in adultery, when you sit down across the table with someone who has walked that street of sin and been run over by other people on that street of sin, Right, that street that you once had on your map and kind of where, where it ran and where, what color the line was, all of a sudden it begins to lift off the page and you begin to walk those, those, those alleys with them. And you begin to see in your own life what sin is and what it does. See, there's lots of us who have maybe a road map that was given to us by the churches that we've been a part of, but maybe there's no intimacy with Jesus because those lines have never lifted off the page. Paul's not just talking about gaining more doctrinal information. He's saying that what he wants is for those things that he confesses, affirms, and believes to be true to lift off the page. He wants to walk those streets of justification. He wants to walk those streets of sanctification. He wants to one day walk that street of glorification when Christ returns to set everything right. So Paul's not talking about conversion here. He's not just talking about the mere acquiring of more doctrinal information. He's talking about intimacy, personal, relational, experiential, conversational relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I want to know him. That's what he says in verse 10. I want to know him. And when some of you think of intimacy, listen, some of you are like getting really excited right now because you're like, man, I, he's going to talk about intimacy with Jesus this morning. Right? And a lot of that was introduction. He's going to talk about intimacy with Jesus this morning. And so I'm getting really excited because I want to I feel close to Jesus. And I want him to grip me in his warm embrace. Right? I want to taste the kiss of heaven. I want him to wrap me up in his arms. And we have this very romantic notion of what that intimacy looks like. So some of us are getting really excited, we're like kind of, you know, secretly kind of rubbing our hands together like this. And other of us are going, intimacy with Jesus. He's going to talk to us about being in touch with our feelings. I'm not really down for that. 
But listen, intimacy with Jesus is not a romantic notion. Paul's going to make that very clear in the text. It's not a romantic notion. It's a relational reality that those who have been conformed to the image of Christ and are being conformed to the image of Christ begin to experience. But how does it happen? How does it happen? How did it happen for Paul? Take a look at this with me. How did it happen for Paul? Listen, Paul says, if you're going to have this intimacy with Christ, what it requires, what it requires, not just, not just doctrinal information, and, and, and it's, he's not talking about conversion, but to have intimacy, relational, conversational, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, it requires that you and I must forfeit all of our credentials. We've got to shred our entire resume. That's what Paul says. If you look at the text in verses seven to nine, listen to what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, listen, if you want to have this intimacy with Jesus, you've got to forfeit your credentials. You've got to take your resume and run it through the shredder. And run it through the shredder so that, see, what, what Paul does when he, when he comes, when, when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, what Paul essentially does is, he, before that, he had this loss and gain columns. He's like an accountant, okay? He had his loss column and he had his gain column. In his gain column, he had all these things that he lists up here higher on in the text. His ethnicity, his national identity, all the rituals that he had participated in, the way that he knew the law and the way that he had kept the law. Paul says, all these things are to my gain. And on the lost side is Jesus and his church. Because the message they are proclaiming undercuts everything that I believe to be my gain. But it's when when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and blinds him. And and the scales fall off and he opens his eyes to see. And Paul is converted. Paul takes a big red pen out and he writes, he crosses through the loss column and he crosses through the gain column. And on top of the gain column, he writes L-O-S-S. All these things are now, I consider them a loss. These are not the places that I find my significance any longer. These are not the places that I find my security any longer. These are not the avenues by which I pursue satisfaction any longer. And on top of the old gain, on top of the old lost column where Jesus is, he writes G A I N exclamation point period done. He says everything that I thought brought me this this the significance that I had achieved for myself, everything that I thought I had acquired for myself through my keeping of the law, through my knowing of the law. Through my, through my credentials, through my resume. It's all a loss. That I might know him and have a righteousness, he says in the text, that doesn't come from me through my keeping of the law, but it comes through Jesus and his keeping of the law for me. 
not a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. He says you've got to forfeit all of your credentials. And what that looks like, it looks like at least two things. First of all, and this one's already up there, you've got to abandon your pedigree. You've got to abandon your pedigree. Listen, some of you have a very good godly heritage in your family. Maybe you were raised in church and your parents, you were there from the time that you were nine months in the womb, right? And you heard the scriptures taught and you heard the lessons given and you saw the flannel board Jesus and you saw um, all the, the changes in technology over the course of that time. But you, you have a very good godly heritage in your life. And some of us, we've, we've kind of like Paul, he says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. On the eighth day circumcised, all the ritual, ceremonial law that had to be kept, I kept it. My parents kept it for me. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was the people of Israel. I belong to the people who belong to God. This is what Paul says. But you know what he says after his conversion? He says, L-O-S-S, loss. So when I look back, maybe, maybe when you look back on your godly heritage of your parents raising you in church and teaching you the truths of the faith and instructing you in, the, in, in who Jesus is, who God is, what he has done on our behalf. When you look back on that, you may be grateful for that, but that's not gain for you. That's not gain for you. He says, I will jettison all of that to know Jesus. I'm not going to depend upon my pedigree. The family that I came from, their faith, but it's a faith of my own in Christ. But notice the second thing Paul says. Not only do you have to abandon your pedigree, but he says you have to repent not only from your wickedness, but also from your goodness. Not only from your wickedness, but also from your goodness. Paul says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That means I knew the law better than all of them and I kept the law better than all of them. In fact, in the text, he even says, as with regards to righteousness according to the law, I was blameless. I crossed every T and I dotted every I. And yet when Paul comes to faith in Jesus, this is what he says, loss, cross it out. It's of no benefit to me. See, and this is, this is so incredibly radical because most of us have grown up in churches all of our lives where what we have heard preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and taught through VBS and at church camps, we've heard over and over again, you must repent from your wickedness. So all those vile acts of the flesh, you've got to turn away from those things. You've got to turn away from immorality. You've got to turn away from promiscuity. You've got to turn away from uh, you know, drug use. You've got to turn away from pornography. You've got to turn away from all these wicked things over here on this left-hand side of the column. And you've got to start doing all these good things over here on the right-hand side of the column. That's what God's will for you is. That's what he wants you to do. And we've grown up, many of us have grown up in churches that that's the message that's reinforced week after week after week after week. And we've never heard someone like Paul say, if you want to have intimacy with Jesus, not only do you repent from your wickedness, but you must also repent from your goodness. It's not that you turn away from doing good things, but you turn away from trusting in the good things that you do. Because as long as you're trusting in the good things that you do, the foundation of your relationship with Christ 
is still a very works-based reward system. So you turn not only from the wickedness, but you also have to repent of your goodness. And this is so incredibly radical. Here's why. Because what it means is this, is that there's not a single person in this room this morning who is behind. And it means that there's not a single person in this room this morning that is ahead. No one got a head start. It means that there's not a single person in this room whose wickedness can make them exempt from being saved. And there's not a single person in this room whose goodness enables them to save themselves. There's not a single person in this room who is lagging behind someone else because we're all starting at the same starting line. Some of us have been in control of our own lives through our wickedness and doing whatever it is that our sinful desires and passions would lead us to do. Others of us have tried to be in control of our own lives. Try and talk too fast sometimes. Others of us have tried to be in control of our own lives by being very, very, very good, thinking God must now owe us something and give us a reward. But Paul says what he had to turn away from him coming to faith in Christ. One of the commentators that I read this week about this text said it this way. He said that what Paul had to turn away from and renounce was not the wickedness of his flesh, but all the goodness of his flesh in which he was trusting. Right? I've kept my pledges and promises to remain pure until I'm married. And that's what makes me acceptable before God. I've stayed away from drugs and hanging out with the wrong crowd. That's what makes me acceptable before God. And Paul says, no, no. He says, what will produce an intimacy with Christ that you've never known, a relational, conversational, personal, and intimate relationship with him, is whenever you stop trusting in a righteousness of your own and start trusting in a righteousness of another. That's what Paul says in Philippians. That's where this intimacy comes from. So you you got to forfeit all of your credentials, shred your resume. That means everybody starts at the same line. How do you know if you've done that? Let me give you one benchmark. You can ask yourself this question. What are you zealous or passionate about? What are you zealous or passionate about? Look at what you're zealous about. Look at what boils you internally. Look what stirs passion within you. Paul says in the text, he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Now, why would Paul be incredibly zealous about persecuting the church? Because the message the church was proclaiming the message of Christ and Christ alone, it ultimately began to chop away at the roots of his pedigree and chop away at the roots of his moral scruples. He was the most scrupulous person on the earth. And it began to cut away at those things so that they were no longer a sufficient source of security for him. And so he rose up to persecute those things that were seeking, seeking to threaten to take away where he found his security where he found his significance. Paul says, I'm passionate about 
stamping out the church because the church is a threat to my own significance and my own security and my own satisfaction before his conversion. See, what are you passionate about? See, one of the things, as you watch kind of the cultural climate in our nation, as it continues to shift in a direction that makes many, many Christians very, very uncomfortable, as you watch it shift, here's what you have to ask yourself about your response to that cultural shift. Do you speak truth very graciously and lovingly? Do you oppose wickedness, which we should? But do you do it in a very hateful, in a very condemnatory fashion? Are you passionate about protecting your position of privilege? Or are you passionate about the glory of God and the good of all men and women? If you're passionate about protecting your position of privilege, then you think that your sexual orientation is what earns you favor with God. If you're passionate about protecting your position of privilege, then you think your particular perspective, which we believe to be true in the scriptures, but you, you stand for it in ways that, that, that just are ugly and downright repulsive at times. Do you oppose wickedness? Do you speak truth? But do you do it in such a way that seasoned with salt? That's very gracious. Are there non-negotiables for you because you have this vision to, 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 to affirm the glory of God for the good of all man? Or are you just trying to protect your position of privilege that you've had for the last 300 years in a very cultural, complacent climate of Christianity that's pervaded our, at least the, the, the surface level of our nation? What are you zealous about? What are you passionate about? See, I said earlier that, that intimacy doesn't mean, it's not a romantic notion, but what intimacy is, and this is where we'll land this morning, it means not, not romanticism, but it means conformity. It means conformity. Look what Paul attaches to this longing to know Jesus. Look what he attaches to it in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection to share or participate willfully in the fellowship of his sufferings and become like him in his death so that somehow by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. See, intimacy with Jesus, it means conformity of our life to Jesus' life. It's not a romantic notion where we kind of get swept up in a way with all the songs that speak about Jesus being our boyfriend and how he embraces us and how we get caught up in that emotion of that moment on all the kind of popular songs that are played on Christian radio today. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about an intimacy that means your life is being conformed. You're sharing in Jesus' experience because you're saying yes to Jesus no matter what it costs. And you're being conformed to his experience. So that you're becoming like him in his death and die, saying no to sin and dying to sin. That you're being obedient. As Paul says earlier in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. 
So you are choosing to be obedient even when it's costly, even when it requires sacrifice, even when it hurts. You're saying no. You're saying no to yourself. You're saying no to your flesh and you're saying yes to Jesus. Even when it means turning away from everything you've ever built your life on to trust that Christ and Christ alone is what justifies you. You're being obedient to the point of death. You're choosing willfully to enter into his sufferings so that whenever you feel like showing up to serve in some kind of capacity at church is going to be costly for you, you still do it. You take that step. Whenever it's going to cost you to go out into the community and pick up debris and photos and shingles and nails and glass. It's going to require you taking vacation time from work to go serve the needs of others. It costs you something and yet you willfully say, I want to participate in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. It's going to cost me something so I'm going to move out towards others. I'm going to die to myself. See, oftentimes when we think of intimacy with Jesus, here's what we think of. We think of this warm embrace that we experience and the power of Jesus' resurrection. But notice what Paul says. He does not, he does not say he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection to feel the warmth of his embrace. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the only way you know the power of being raised to life is when you die. is when you die. The only way that I can know the power of Jesus' resurrection in my life is whenever I die. Is whenever I take up my cross and follow after him. But as you do, as you do by God's grace, there is a power of this new life that you find. And as your life is conformed to his, there is an intimacy, a conversational, personal, experiential relationship with Jesus where the lines on the page begin to lift off and you now you see the city. And it produces a maturity in your life you've never known before as you grow up in the faith. It produces a community formed around that. Because here's what you've got now. You've got people who are walking along the street of obedience with you. And whenever you feel inclined to turn down the alleyway of sin in that city of your doctrinal map, they're going, don't go that way. What are you doing? They're pleading with you and praying for you. There's a community that's formed as these lines on the map lift off the page and we begin to see the city together as a community of faith and we're one anothered by people and we're one anothering others and this maturity is being produced. There's a generosity that comes with that as well as you begin to say, I want to give away my time. I want to give away my money. I want to give away my resources. Not because they make me, not because they're in the gain column over here. Jesus is in the gain column. All this is lost. I'm not building my life on this, but I want to move toward other people because I have this intimacy with Jesus and I've died to myself. So it's not about what I can do with my time now. It's about what Jesus can use my time for. It's not about what I can do with my resources now. It's about what Jesus would use for my resources for. There's a maturity, there's a community, there's a, there's a generosity. 
And you know what? And there's a pulse that beats as well where you say, I want other people to have this intimacy with him like I've found. Not I'm gonna sway on the eighth grade dance floor kind of intimacy, but this intimacy of my life being conformed to his. So you wanna help multiply this community of people who are saying, don't go that way, stay this way. You wanna multiply those as we together as a church be a part of Jesus' great commission of sharing, shaping, and sending. See, 2016, what I want us to want more than anything else is an intimacy with Christ because I, I know, I see in the text what that will produce in this body of believers. This next week, we're going to be mailing out, uh, those of you who have gone through our uh, covenant membership process here at Redeemer, we're going to be mailing out covenant renewal cards to you. And they're going to basically be asking for you to commit to those five things I just mentioned, to commit, renew your, reaffirm your commitment, your covenant, to maturity, to community, to generosity, to the vision of multiplying what God is doing in the life of Redeemer Church and to the mission of sharing the gospel, shaping disciples, and sending missionaries into our neighborhoods and around the world. Then on January 31st, we're gonna come together as a body of believers and we're gonna bring, as a part of the service, we're gonna visually reaffirm our commitment to those things together. So as you receive that card in the mail this week, and we'll have some here for those of you who tend to forget them, We'll have some here as well for you that Sunday whenever we bring them forward. As you prayerfully consider your reaffirmation to the covenant that we enter into every time somebody comes through our membership process, I want you to think about, I want you to consider what Paul says here in the text. That those things, those things are not in the gain column for me. They're not what I'm building my life on, but because I know him. And because there's an increasing intimacy with him, there is conformity to his life. And here's what it begins to look like. Let's pray together.